you're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Super. It's time. Hi. You're <laughs> listening to the Unsung Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mr. Mark Fraser. My middle name is David. And I'm joined by two men who may or may not have middle names. Uh, facing me is a man who drives around Glasgow in a hot rotted coffin mobile. It's got flames <laughs> down the side, leopard print coffin uh, accoutrements. Accoutrements. And uh, green smoke coming from the exhausts. It's Mr. Chris Kusak. Thank you very much. Now, to my, <laughs> my left, uh, come on. Uh, oh. Thanks. Sweet. So, what are we doing this week, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> this week, I, I'm pretty psyched about this because it has been a case of like not putting this forward too soon because I really dig this band uh, the 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster or 80s Matchbox or T-E-M-B T-E-M-B-D B-D Tembadeba uh, then other folk were like sometimes abbreviated to 80s nope never been abbreviated to 80s <laughs> I'll tell you what has been abbreviated to 80s the 1980s that's true not this band mm. But sometimes when you type in 80s It comes up in the 1980s Inexplicably before this band I wonder how that happened How did a decade get so successful? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> just saw the SEO For the fucking 90s Matchbox behind it I'm telling you Startling um, Yeah we're doing Horse of the Dog Which is the debut album By 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster Can you say it with the umlauts in it? Uh, the horse of the dog. Horse of the dog. <laughs> uh, formed in 1989 in Brighton, one of only two good places in England. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> Is the other one Manchester? Uh, no, the other one's Bristol. That was a callback. Manchester doesn't get a look in. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I clearly didn't get it. <laughs> but maybe if I say that, it'll leave me alone. <laughs> Anytime I run out of power today. <laughs> Nick Cave arrives <laughs> Nick Cave What the fuck What It's clearly Elvis I know but he's also got a really deep voice And I think it's, We'll get on to this We'll talk about this We have As a call for We have an incredible chemistry <laughs> Repartee This is what happens when we take a week off I know just The sparks it just falls apart Flopping out <laughs> Droopy Droopy sparks uh, Yeah so uh our first uh, voyage into the world of Psychobilly, although A's Matchbox are probably a little bit more nuanced than just Psychobilly, I guess. Well, I mean, I suppose you could classify them as like fourth wave Psychobilly. They're, it's a lot of waves. Yeah. Mm. But, but I mean, they came after, after, after the fact 
but they're heavily influenced by. They're an homage, you might say. Yeah, uh, they're postmodern take. Yeah, uh, I do like the fact that Psychobilly came from surf rock, and this is the fourth wave. <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh, fucking hell! Name yeah. Sparks, man. Name Sparks. There's <laughs> <laughs> only one week off as well. One week. Um, one week off. One week off. <clears throat> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> hey, have okay. you suddenly become a dad? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know what? I've been looking at the money coming in, and this audience is getting what it pays for, which is not very much. Psychobilly, Gothbilly, we'll touch on that in a little bit. He's Matchbox Beyond Disaster. Uh, at this point, comprised of Guy McKnight, the improbably brilliantly named Guy McKnight, uh, the vocalist and. Extremely charismatic frontman who I think the band's success owes no small amount to. Uh, Andy Huxley at this point on guitar, uh, Sim Garial, the bassist, Tom Diamantopoulou on drums, who's one of the other long term members, and Mark Norris on guitar. Uh, there were a few changes of membership. Uh, a fella called Rich Founds came in from 2005 2008 after Andy Huxley left. He was from a band called With Scissors. Uh, Rich Founds then went on to join Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. um, But we'll talk about that a wee bit later as well uh, Plus uh, Tristan McLennan and Dominic Knight uh, 2011 So they've had a few members but they've always had a fairly consistent sound I think it's also worth pointing out That the individual members of 80s Matchbox When you get into their tunes Have some pretty distinct tone choices And they also often go for really weird crappy sounding effects Like They, they like a shit chorus pedal they're like a shit flange some of the guitars sound like kazoos it's it's so weird like the, the tones are really bizarre like you can imagine them playing them out of some wee martial combo mm-hmm. 50 watt guy with of pedals, but they somehow make it work. I think that's a really fascinating part of it. I mean, okay, the production on some of these records is great. Mm-hmm. They're they're pretty idiosyncratic in every way. Also, Guy McKnight. I don't know why, but he always reminds me of Noel Fielding. Uh, well, I think Noel Fielding was a big fan of them. Is that true? Um, and I think in series two of the Mighty Bush, I think it might be the first episode. There's a song. It's it's uh, from the episode Nanageddon. And then it's like all about grannies coming to get you. And it is basically <laughs> like just it. an 80s Matchbox song. And I think... Did they do it? I think Noel... No, because it was always the Mighty Bush did their own music. Oh, okay. But I'm pretty sure Noel had said that this was like a tribute to them because it came out... It must have been like 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in, there's an episode in the Mighty Bush when Noel's character is a goth. And it's I think his name is basically Guy McKnight, in fact. So, yeah. Funnily enough, yeah, there were big influences on the Mighty Bush. I'm just, I'm putting this out there, um, maybe undermining my cisgender white male credentials. Guy McKnight's got to be the closest I've ever been to a man crush. The guy's fucking amazing. He is so fucking good live. A goth babe. Ah, he's just, he's dynamite. He's like, he looks deranged. There's something really not right about him. And he went through a few phases as well. Early on, he was this pure frantic dude, but then he kind of went into a sort of kind of handlebar moustache period and then by the time they did their third album in 2010 he was basically Jack Sparrow but pulled it off at every stage like flawlessly and he had these weird live ticks of just like 
staring at the audience with his eyes like really wide and being completely motionless for like one, two minutes at a time. Really excellent showman, really compelling, very, very, very good live band. So the only good gig I ever saw in the ABC2 in Glasgow as well. Oh, really? It's a dreadful venue, but uh, these guys absolutely owned it. Um, yeah, so I mean, but I can remember them coming out. There was a total buzz about them. I would have been 15 or 16. And they were kind of one of these crossover bands that were big in the NME, but then also big in Kerrang. Yeah. Because sort of rockers to, went to them. They were nothing knew what to do with them. They were such a weird category <clears throat> of, of band. It's like they came out ostensibly from like the underground scene as well. They were already playing at the Barfly in Glasgow. I remember their early days. They were very affiliated with this really excellent and very oddball band from Glasgow called Lapsus Lingui. And they had a similar sense of the absurd, but shared a lot of influences. I think things like The Birthday Party and Jesus Lizard were in there, even though their music doesn't necessarily go straight down those routes. You, you can hear big parts of it, a bit of shellac and Steve Albini as well, Big Black, things like that. Um, yeah, I remember them just turning up and causing such a stir just in word of mouth before that first album was even a thing. Uh, and then the first album landed and was immediately like nominated for a bunch of stuff. And then they... They rolled up at the Kerrang Awards in 2002 in what you were hinting at, this like hearse, converted black hearse with giant flames down the side of it. Yeah. And basically everybody sort of was hot like... hot rodded thing. Yeah. Who the fuck is this? And they just caused a big splash with that. I mean, coming from very, very little to start with. Uh, first album was originally released on their own label. I think it was then franchised through Universal. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, they they really landed and were completely idiosyncratic. I mean, what was 2002, 2003? Well, like Linkin Park was 2003's biggest selling album, wasn't it? Yeah, but you all, it was also the exact same time you had things like the Hives and the Strokes. You yeah, know, you so had that garage rock revival, you had the D4, were, the Datsuns, yeah. all that stuff. And they could, they probably played well all those bands, they were probably lumped in with those bands for a lot, of, I mean, a lot of publications as well, I think. I'm sure they did festivals with those bands, but certainly early on the experience of his matchbox was that they were way, way, way more out left field than than those kind of groups. Like they were not under the wing of the bigger promotions companies and the Live Nation. Mm-hmm. Thing. Although they went on to do that, you know, ended up with some huge tours. But a really, really fascinating and odd band, sonically completely isolated or from from other things that seemed to be happening. Even down to the crap tones they were using and stuff like that and making them happen. And the fact they came from these sweat boxes in Brighton. Well, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, but it seemed like they did a lot of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they do talk about drugs and about uh, giving up drugs yeah. because they were taking a lot of drugs. Aye, absolutely. And that came across and there was a definite sense of edginess to them. Yeah, they had like a real horror movie aesthetic as well. That's one of the things about Psychobilly and Gothabilly. Uh, they had this fixation with like sort of like Bella Lugosi esque kind of la, 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 you know. Bella Lugosi's dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The dark is coming. Like that, this kind of thing, um, which stemmed from, I'd imagine. Their love of bands like the Cramps and stuff. There's definitely um, a Misfits vibe in some of those songs as well, yeah. which you can see where they get that aesthetic from. I think um, Psycho Billy basically 
is usually reduced to something like a mixture between rockabilly, punk rock, and horror movie aesthetics. People like Dick Dale back in like what, 1959, I think he started mm-hmm. in the 60s. People like Dick Dale set this kind of aggressive. I think he was, was he not the first guitarist to use like a hundred watt amp? Was I think that's right. I think the Fender built a hundred watt amp for Dick Dale, which was like the the most powerful amp they'd made at the time because he wanted to beef it so hard. And it was guys like him that set this thing in motion of surf rock and rockabilly and doo-wop getting heavier and heavier and faster and nastier. You know, um, you listen to some old, like, Tornadoes tracks and things like that from the early 60s. You know, surf music and, like, they've actually got really heavy tones. It's like stuff that disappeared and then came back years later. Um, but they were totally experimenting with dark sounds. There's a really, really great video, and I've, I've cited this YouTube channel uh, before. This Exists. This Exists did an excellent episode, which is how surf rock is exactly black metal, but with different pedals. And if you listen to I the, really, the, I can the chord progressions and stuff, so on, on the show, he does like a like-for-like like comparison, yeah. where they take famous surf rock tracks and show bands cover them as black metal and vice yeah, versa. Yeah, because it's all just that tremolo stuff. Yeah, and, and it's really fucking cool, like, yeah. like how transferable it is. So yeah, it was quite an apolitical genre though, uh, despite the, the timing of it, uh, the horror themes tended to supplant It was more like of sort it. of fantastical ex- escapist sort exactly. of stuff, because yeah, they were sort of tired of either the, the sort of Nazis or the total left-leaning Vietnam stuff, and they were like, and, oh, yeah. fuck it guys. I, I sort of, I just wrote that they were, it's basically like Dead Kennedys, except talking about vampires rather than Nixon. Yeah, well I think they embraced early on that B-movie aesthetic as well, all the, mm-hmm. all the great shitty <laughs> horror movies that were coming out in the 50s and 60s played a big part in this. Obviously early pioneers as we've mentioned were the Cramps who I think kicked off in about 75 up until uh, Lux Interior's death in 2009. The Cramps and the kind of prominent members Lux Interior, Poison Ivy, uh, Kid Congo as well, who then went on to do Kid Congo in the Pink monkey birds, I think. Yeah. Uh, the Cramps are from uh, Ohio, and a couple of the more famous tracks, ones you might know, there's a track called Human Fly, uh, and there's a track called Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. Which you can occasionally hear at the odd discotheque. It's basically all Adam's family or the monsters turned it into a band. The, the thing is the Cramps are really good. Like, oh yeah. That's a yeah, really yeah. good band and super edgy and a band that often got missed out of retrospectives of places like CBGB's in New York. CBGB's was always associated with television and talking heads and Blondie and then later on the kind of precursors to like Yeah Yeah Yeah's and Interpol and those kind of acts but 
the cramps caused a big, big splash at CBGBs when they first came out as well. And I think there's a documentary kicking about that, that omits them entirely, and that definitely put a few noses out of joint. After the cramps, in 1980, there was a band down south called the Meteors. Who really sort of played a big part in a coalescing the the psychobilly sound? The fans of the Meters were also kind of collectively known as the Crazies, and there are some avenues, in fact, quite a lot of avenues that credit them as being the, the first audiences to really get into slam dancing, and that then got picked up by the punk community in general. But yeah, and and again, they were just taking big elements of rockabilly, doo wop, garage rock, surf. After them in the mid eighties. Somebody who gets overlooked a lot as well, and I think any if you like eighties Matchbox Beelines, I say you have to check them out. Reverend Horton Heat. Released in Sub Pop, uh, Reverend Horton Heat. A lot of the Matchbox stuff is like that on speed, um, but in saying that, Horton Heat gets pretty gets pretty out there. It was a guy called Jim Heath, and uh, yeah, and just another big big part of consolidating that sound. Uh, like I said, there's also a kind of gothabilly subset, which is just a little bit more horror punk. People like the Misfits. Mark, you're a you're a Misfits fan. I like Misfits a lot. Yeah, man. Yeah. There's definitely, as as uh, as singers have rotated out, and Jerry Only's became like the kind of vocal, I guess, frontman. He's not a frontman anymore because Danzig's back. But when he was mostly responsible for songwriting, they kind of definitely moved more towards a fifties rockabilly sound. A lot of their more recent records, although they don't record very often, the last two or three records are pretty much entirely rockabilly records with heavy bass and heavy guitars. I mean, the Misfits were what. Late 70s, 77, 78? Yeah, uh, earlier than that, mid-70s. They right. were before punk. They were a band that was before punk. Yeah, so I mean, an early influence who kind of gradually moved across to this sort of very eccentric look. 80s well, always had that. Like, if you look at if you look at Static Ace, the first record, which, which only came out in 1997, even though it was recorded way back in the, the mid-70s, like, they always had that horror movie aesthetic. The first record, anyway, uh, has the, on the front cover, has, like, them and, like, the proper horror punk death get up sort of thing which they've always kind of went with and I think when you see some of the Matchbox uh, videos and things like that they they clearly were somewhat influenced by that mm-hmm. the Misfits were trendsetters in that way anyway yeah. AFI took in huge ways for them mm-hmm. and then in terms of bands taking from bands like Horton Heat uh, Reverend Horton Heat and taking from the Cramps you've got even with like John Spencer's Blues Explosion Beach Buggy an English band uh, Really good. The Living End. Living they're End. Still yeah. huge yep. in Australia, actually. Uh, Tiger Army. Tiger Army. I always get them. They're they're really close friends with AFI. Nick always the singer always appears on on the records doing backing vocals and stuff. 
but they are still proper, like psychobilly rock, punk rock band. Tim Armstrong started his uh, record label Hellcat. He quite often signed a lot of psychobilly. Yeah, and like the Necromantics and stuff like that. Yeah. He put out records by them. Uh, yeah. There's another band as well that will maybe get overlooked for any listeners abroad, but they're called Demented of Go. They were from Wales in the very early 80s, I think it was in 1982. Scene has been one of the best of the second wave of psychobilly stuff, and worth checking out. Uh, so, I mean, there is quite a like rich history to it. Um, it's definitely quite niche and quite camp. It lends to that aesthetic of B movies and leopard print. And it's like fun goth yeah. rather than miserable goth. It, it yeah, is basically. It, it's a really enjoyable genre, actually. I mean, it, it's certainly a lot of fun. Listeners, sorry to disturb you uh, in the midst of this episode, but we need to throw ourselves at your feet and beg for money. As ever, we are looking to continue doing this without hawking internal organs and or plasma. Mm, plasma. To do that, we would actually we were actually discussing possibly doing another live episode. Uh, unfortunately, to do that, we will need to get hold of a couple other bits of kit because couple of things have surrendered to wear and tear since the last one so it'd be lovely if you feel like donating something to go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate one approach that we like is one pound per episode you thought was passable <laughs> and some people have done that already yeah and that's that's kind of a nice approach uh and i think represents a decent price in this marketplace um so yeah if you can go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate is it just a bank card, Mark, or is it a PayPal? It's PayPal. PayPal, it's even easier. PayPal. It's just, you know, all you're doing is banging in a password. We'll screen grab your password. We'll use it to order ourselves long stockings from <laughs> eBay. <laughs> but we're going to return you to your previously scheduled program with that tiny additional hint of guilt that the cash call now brings. Go and get rid of it. Go and pause it. Go and donate. And then enjoy the rest of the show with a clear conscience. Thanks, folks. Thanks, guys. Matchbox themselves as we said this album came out in 2002 and I think it was best newcomer they were nominated for uh, by Kerrang magazine which is like mm-hmm. the biggest magazine over here for that kind of music for rock music That, by the way I think that title was actually won by Cooper Temple Claus who were never as good as I hoped they would be yeah yeah. I think what was the first song the Where? first big single they had was it oh, fuck something chasing dogs oh yeah that and, was a good song and then the album just Yeah, they, I think they broke up roughly around the same time the Matchbox did. There you go. But they toured, they toured constantly until their end, basically. Mm-hmm. The, whoa, what else? Uh, oh, that uh, 
car you were talking about also featured in the video for Psychosis Safari. Mm-hmm. And that was directed by Edgar Wright. And yeah. Edgar Wright went on to direct Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Yeah. And 80s Matchbox had the track Mr. Mental in Shaun of the Dead. And I think a whole bunch of posters and stuff in the walls, mm. incidentally, yeah. in the background. Yeah. Because Edgar, Edgar was a big like horror movie fan, obviously. Yeah. He's been mad, didn't John Spencer Blues Explosion as well, Edgar Wright. John Spencer's brilliant. Like, that's a, that John Spencer's Blues Explosion is something I might nominate. At some point, the hard part is choosing what, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff. Rich Founds, as I mentioned, joined Nine Inch Nails. Now, I believe... I actually kind of knew Rich a bit this time via other avenues and I don't know if he actually ever played with Nine Inch Nails. He didn't. Because I, th- I, bl- I think Rich's grandfather died mm-hmm. before the start of the tour mm-hmm. and Rich had been really close to him and had to... And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from memory, I could be off and I apologise if I am off, but I think he came back for the funeral and, the, and Nine Inch Nails decided they couldn't afford for him to go back or something like that, so mm-hmm. they basically then he was replaced. Yeah, they did not get the guy from um, the Icarus line. Could I mean, well. who knows? I mean, Nine Inch Nails have had the guy, that, the guy that went fucking mental, the guy that legitimately lost his mind at one point and just like became a hermit. I mean, it sounds like yeah. the kind of person you could get for Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and other bits of trivia, I guess. He's uh, Matchbox Bailey Zaster released a song and did a bunch of stuff as The Boogs, which was them mm-hmm. dressed as giant green bumblebees. It's only released five songs. Yeah, it's not a lot of mm. stuff. There's one video of them going about New York dressed as bumblebees, but it's kind of similar stuff, punky and rough, but for whatever reason they thought this was just for the lols. I don't know if the police horses in the video liked their costumes uh-huh. very much. Um, but yeah, so kind of like really odd backstory. Uh, I think one of the things that sets them apart, I mean, it cited all those kind of like rockabilly and surf influences and stuff, but as I mentioned, 80s Matchbox have a nasty side to them. They have a real edge guy's vocals he's a brilliant screamer proper hardcore punk scream man yeah he's, he's he's great at that um and so there are there are definitely other elements at play i think as i said big black steve albini that kind of era steve albini some of the self-aware arrangements, the fact that they occasionally play an anti-solo where the song almost falls apart and then comes back in, uh, the fact that some of the, the tones and the timings are quite... I mean, there's just there's little hints that are very subtle, but mm-hmm. they do they are reminiscent of some of the kind of funnier, more self-aware things that Shellac will do and certainly some of the more abrasive moments of Big Black and even Rape Man. It's also interesting that I remember they came out and they were obviously... It was difficult to you know, pin them down. So like, I remember like Kerrang and NME were also like tying them up with that sort of chaotic hardcore of At The Drive-In and Blood Brothers as yeah, well. And which is, Fav as yeah, and Savvy Fav as well. Yeah, so it's like, they do have that sort of sense of... Absolutely. And certainly their live shows, much like those bands when they were at that kind of, at that hot rising period, their live shows were really, really intense workouts. They were really mm-hmm. hot and sweaty and pretty brutal. Um, 
And another thing, like I said, the other ingredient I think it gets overlooked maybe with his matchbox is the birthday party. Now I know that their friends and kind of tour buddies, Lapsus Lingue at the time, were big birthday party fans and I'm pretty sure these guys were as well because that gothy Nick Cave thing is there and the birthday party, that sinister murder ballady element is absolutely at play and also that much more off-kilter, unsettling, nasty, uncooperative element of birthday party definitely is there too. Just Sometimes they just fuck you off with a really nasty tone. Some of the some of the later tracks and some of their albums are particularly dissonant. Um, so I, th- I think they do take that psychobilly thing, but then they bring this much more modern alt rocky noise rock thing to it. Um, now let's do the Nexus, but I know for a fact that Mark's Nexus this week is so fucking good. Yeah, we might just have to. We might break the. This Nexus. is a problem. We've been talking about it. We might have to never do it again because it also might cancel the Foo Fighters. Yeah, might I mean, I, Dave Grohl. I mean, this is the thing. Mark for so long has been waiting, 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 <laughs> reserving his energy, hitting us with these like simple jabs, and he's just about to hit the right cross of death mm-hmm. with this nexus. I've got and a hate me, haymaker coming down the road. <laughs> completely <laughs> destroy the nexus, uh, and I don't even think I'm overselling it because it's fucking astonishing. Like yeah. when you said that, I was like, "What the fuck, really?" Um, so. Yeah, but we'll, we'll play Fritz's music, but Fritz, I don't know how many more times we're going to be able to play this music, man. <laughs> we might have to canvas the audience for ideas for a new bit. Yeah, it's, for yeah. a new man. And it's going to I, be... I mean, I want to keep the Nexus going, but it might not be... We might have to change the person. Yeah, because I don't see how we can follow this. This is this is career-ending stuff. It truly is. Mm-hmm. This is the, uh, the video in the Russian hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Fritz? It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Grohl Nexus need to find a way to connect the show to that guy. For playing in Nirvana, to hanging with Obama, he knows lots of folk, so stands to reason we'll find a way. It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Grohl Nexus, don't take too long. Uh, all right, well, I'll just, uh, Mark, I'm going to get mine out of the way nice and quick yeah, and cede yeah. my time to you. So, yeah. Royal Society, the record was recorded by Chris Goss of Masters of Reality at Sound City. And during the recording sessions, Dave Grohl came in to watch the band record. Uh, That's fair enough. In autumn 2016, uh, two members, Huxley and Gary, uh, released a new project, Piano Wire. Uh, they're track Get a Life was produced by uh, Gil Norton Gil Norton uh, 
produced several Foo Fighters albums. <laughs> several Foo Fighters albums. So there yeah. you are, short and sweet. Let's hear it. Yeah, so uh, I create and I destroy. Yeah, this is... <laughs> let, let's help each other through this. Yeah, we're going to need we're gonna need some support, I think. Uh, so the Prodigy covered uh, the 80s Matchbox behind disaster song, Rise of the Eagles. It's pretty interesting. It's a bonus track, I think, yeah. on ba, 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 ba. The Day Is My Enemy. Mm-hmm. That's the name of that album. This isn't the way this is going to go either. <laughs> yeah, no, so... But uh, but very quickly, the Prodigy, also Dave Grohl played drums in there run, on a track called Run With The Wolves for Invaders Must Die. Yeah, I but mean... But that's not where we're going. This is not where we're going, because... Yeah. Uh, that's where the old Mark would go. Yeah, this is getting dark. This <laughs> is getting dark, guys. So the Prodigy are, have also been well known for sampling songs by many different artists over the course of their career. Mm-hmm. As you might imagine that, you know, a dance dance adjacent crew might do. They have su- they have sampled some tracks by a really well known band from England called Queen. The Queen. Uh, specifically, they uh, sampled the Kiss from the Flash Gordon soundtrack and the show must go on. And the show must go on is quite interesting. The song because it was one of I think it was I believe it was one of the last ones that Freddie recorded because Freddie knew he was dying, dying of AIDS. Yes, AIDS. And that extremely serious autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's well known to exist. Well known. Very, very, very serious condition, which thankfully, you know, treatment has got better. We were talking about this earlier on about how isn't it amazing that we live in a world where AIDS is totally treatable now and it didn't happen because somebody was like, oh, whoa, we found a new chemical nobody ever found and it fixes AIDS. It was like this incremental... Yeah, gradual improvement of service. Amazing. It's like, because that's not the scenario you think of. Mm-hmm. You, you said the phrase eureka moment, you kind of think of oh, we found this frog in the Amazon and if you rub yeah. its tongue with a cotton bud, it fixes AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. If only. <laughs> I mean, that'd be nice. But yeah, the, I mean, to kind of expand on that, the, the T-cell kind of people who take uh, HIV and AIDS medication now is is often so low that they can actually have unprotected sex because it is not contagious. We don't recommend it. We don't recommend it. Uh, but there's definitely people that would recommend that, particularly back in the early 2000s. And that's, what's, what's her name? The... The person's name was Christine, Christine Maggiore. Christine Maggiore. Yeah, who was uh, a very famous AIDS denialist. and who, who wrote, what was it, she wrote a book? I can't remember the name of the book, but her foundation was called Alive and Well Alternatives to AIDS Foundation. Yeah, and there were a number of campaigns, adverts, yep. things on the internet, and I think mm-hmm. flyers and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And you can see them, and it's kind of going into that whole thing of like the AIDS lobby is helping make AIDS a, a profitable, it's sort of very similar to anti-vaxxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, said that HIV wasn't communicable. There was no evidence that it was uh, contagious. Yep. If you've got bit, HIV, don't just ignore the blood tests because they're inaccurate. Yeah, don't take the medications because the, the, the medications are what's making you sick, she used mm-hmm. to tell people. Now, her three-year-old daughter died of, died of an AIDS. AIDS-related illness, and then five years later, she died, she died of, of an AIDS-related despite, illness. Despite... Uh, yeah, despite repeatedly in public saying she was living and extremely healthy with AIDS and that it was all made up. She now, treated it with ibuprofen, apparently. Yeah. Or tried to. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Probably very unsuccessful. Sort of treated is the word there. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's got pretty dark here, guys. Yeah. Uh, how are you going to shine the light oh, on this, Mark? How are well, we going to 
I'm going to just Connect clamp the door. Se- that's, that's seismic sli- fucking like uh, mic drop here. Yeah, that sliver of light that you can see just mm-hmm. creeping in under the mm-hmm. door is about to get fucking extinguished with an atomic bomb of truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, uh, in the year 2000, the Foo Fighters played a benefit concert for Christie's Majority and her Alive Male Foundation. This all comes off the back of the fact that Nate Mendel found Christine's book um, about how AIDS is basically fake and the whole band then appeared in promotional video for her and did a sold out concert where she was allowed to platform yeah, her, I, I her opinions. And on, to avoid it seeming you know, too tenuous, there's actually a couple of videos about it and they include footage of her going on stage as the Foo Fighters are warming up to play the show and telling the audience, hey, I've got AIDS and I'm living with it and I'm fine, don't listen to the propaganda. Mm-hmm. And then the Foo Fighters appeared, the whole band appear in a promotional video for Alive and Well, where they are asked, how do you feel about AIDS now? Oh, I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm paraphrasing here, but to the effect of, yeah, turns out that, you know, Christine's got a good point here and it's really maybe not what everybody's made out to be. I think that most people have been scared of AIDS. I think that most people have been sort of force-fed the idea of a death sentence. Are you afraid of AIDS? Am I afraid of AIDS? No. Because I'm here with Alive and Well. So are you afraid of AIDS, Taylor? This is, a, this is making me not so afraid, actually. I mean, this can all be seen, and it sounds like we're kind of like drawing connections that aren't there. No, you'll actually see them seeing to camera, the members of the Foo Fighters. All in- four of them. Including your man, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, funnily enough, I noticed that like Pat Smear wasn't... He wasn't in the band at the time. Wasn't He'd left. Because Chris Shifflett replaced him. Right, and Chris Shifflett's in it, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, because if you look in the... If also, uh, as another connection, if you look in the liner notes of The Colour and the Shape, this charity is, is mentioned. Yes. So a link to their website was also on the Foo Fighters website for about... 14 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how Foo Fighters got involved in this. Uh, Christine wrote a book. What if everything you thought you knew about AIDS was wrong? And I found the book and read it and was intrigued by what it said. There you go. So that's about as damning as it gets. There, there is primary evidence as well as multiple other examples of this being a sustained thing. Mm-hmm. 14 years they linked to this. Now, Mark, you pointed out Dave Grohl played but the AIDS Benefit concert. Elton John's AIDS, Elton John's Benefit, AIDS, concert, AIDS yeah. Benefit concert. That's pretty fucking rich, mm-hmm. given that, you know, for, I mean, say, 14 years, how many people were, were potentially exposed to risk by that fake news bullshit that they were engaged in, that anti-vax fucking denialism that they were contributing to? That's that's astonishing. Like, I, I could not believe it when you told me this. Mm-hmm. Ama- and I, then I thought, right, maybe... Alive and Wells in the sleeve notes and that's it and they maybe just didn't really know what it was and maybe she got in touch and said hi we're an AIDS charity and they were like oh great we'll help no no they knew Nate Mandel is interviewed holding the book talking about how great the book is and then you see samples of the book and what it says and it is not good stuff yep. and then in the exact same video clips you see Dave Grohl Chris Shiflett Taylor Hawkins Taylor Hawkins also apparently an anti-vaxxer yeah so he, he's played some concerts for an autism Quote unquote autism research charity because he is apparently an anti vaxxer. So. so, guys, I'm afraid to tell you officially because this is a new website that actually exists where you can check Dave Grohl is officially cancelled. Oh, Dave Grohl has been cancelled. <laughs> so, you guys. can go to amicancelled.com and check your name. Uh, apparently, David Weaver is also cancelled, but I'm <laughs> going to say that that's one of the more famous David Weavers that includes uh, Christian and 
evangelist and a crime writer. So you can check yourself if you have been cancelled. The verdict is with in. amicancelled.com. Mm. But I'm afraid that Dave Grohl has officially been cancelled. And I mean, that's not going to be a more famous Dave Grohl. There is only yeah, one Dave no. Grohl. So Imagine there was. And we just have we forgotten about him. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, remember President Grohl. <laughs> Fuck. The guy that saved us for the aliens. Yeah. yeah. And um, AIDS. <laughs> so there you go. That is the, the Nexus to end all. Yes. Next I ladies uh, and gentlemen, the Nexus da- is Dave Grohl in a video helping raise money for an AIDS denial charity. So I think we might engage on Facebook with you guys um and Twitter as to are we just deciding he's cancelled? He's cancelled. I was going to say, I think we've, I think we have now officially brought the nexus to an end. The Dave Grohl nexus yeah, the Dave is Grohl. complete. A, but, I mean, yeah, like I mean, all black holes, it has collapsed in on itself. I do. <laughs> I think you know the problem is the nexus is probably my favourite bit of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we're going to do is we're maybe going to think of several options and get you guys to vote mm-hmm. for who should be our next nexus. Um, Victim? Victim. Victim or yeah. hero. Or hero. Yeah, whoever sure. it may be. Uh, so we'll put as many choices as we can up on the Facebook and or the Twitter and give it a vote. I'd like so. to see Nicolas Cage, but maybe yeah, it's just... I think we should... Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe the Nick Cage Nexus. Or the Patrick Swayze ne- Nexus. Dave. <laughs> oh, white men. I noticed again, Mark. <laughs> yeah, you know. I know we could uh, we could do the Oprah Winfrey Nexus. But Ooh, that would actually that would be actually be too show easy because yeah. 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 yeah, we'll work it out. Anyway, but anyway for, we'll for the last time ever, mm-hmm. let's play Fritz's Nexus jingle, and we'll play the full thing. Fucking, it's a belter, so. It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Grohl Nexus need to find a way to connect the show to that guy. For playing in Nirvana To hanging with Obama He knows lots of folk So stands to reason we'll find a way It's the Unsung Podcast Dave Grohl Nexus Don't take too long I would say for thanks to Fritz for yeah. that. I mean, you yeah, got us through peace. many a fucking long edit with your uh, consistently chuckle-inducing. How many episodes Nexus. did we make it with the Nexus? Is it fifty? It started in the mid thirties, right? So we're just about to hit, this is the seventieth episode. So um, must be close. Yeah, must be close. About yeah. forty or forty-five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would hate to have to go back and listen to our podcast though. Yeah, to me too. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a job for another lifetime. <laughs> so. Uh, 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster, uh, Horse of the Dog, or Horse of the Dog, is their first record. It was followed in 2004 by the Royal Society. Now, the band are pretty hot at this point. Uh, they went to the States and they recorded with Chris Goss, who said at the time that they were his favourite band in the world after he'd worked with them. Uh, that recording session at Sound City was attended by all manner of people, Foo Fighters included, but also folk like Josh Homme and a, a number of others. Uh, they also went and toured later on with Queens of the Stone Age, probably largely to do with that kind of Chris Goss seal of approval. At this point, 
the tone of the band changed a little bit. They they had much bigger songs. Uh, you could sort of hear that Masters of Reality, Queens of the Stone Age thing happening where things were more fleshed out. The production was quite lush. There were acoustic guitars. It's a really, really good album. Um, it is not as gonzo and as manic necessarily, although it has some pretty dark passages. It is a big step forward, though, in terms of structures. Uh, McKnight's vocals on it are really, really strong. Like, he's obviously very confident. Now, as we mentioned as well, both Guy McKnight and Andy Huxley, who was still in the band at this point, this is his last record with him, had clearly done a lot of drugs. Uh, and so in 2003, they became Buddhist. I think in part, if not in the main, to try and get away from that that lifestyle. And this was their first album, Drug Free, which, you know, in some senses you could think oh, that might take the edge off a bit, but it's still pretty out there. I think it kind of teases at the very start of this album, just to go through it quickly, it teases that it's going to be lo-fi because of the way that Rise of the Eagles starts, but then it takes about 20 seconds and it just rips in. The guitars sound incredible in this album. The production's brilliant, which is sort of predictable. Uh, McKnight's straight in with the kind of Elvis vocals. That opening track has loads of like hand claps and breakdowns, uh, and the, the production values really shine. The second, the third, and the fifth tracks all have a very distinct feel from the, the first record from Horse of the Dog. Um, they're much bigger, much fuller. Uh, the, my favourite track on um, Royal Society is the seventh one, The Fool. And it's a fantastic bit of music. It it really combines the sort of celebrate your mother propulsive rockabilly stuff with a nice really grindy bass and then these really absurdist backing vocals. Like th- this album is full of really weird backing vocals that sound like a joke, but then are so cleverly used that they just really augment the the songs themselves. The eighth track in this one, I Rejection, is the first point where it really starts to get nasty again. It's this really juddering weird kind of obtuse piece of music i'm not quite sure what the writing process was behind it really idiosyncratic it's got some fucking brilliant lines in it there's a the chorus in this has it give me your heart because i feel like a tin man but then followed by this really stupid guitar thing that goes meow, meow, meow. <laughs> it's just it's just a brilliant juxtaposition um drunk on the blood is where the queens of stone age kind of sounds start to appear it's kind of got a shanty feel to it mr mental is the one from Shaun of the dead the 10th track Really, really good song. Very hooky, very driving. Loads of really absurdist lyrics. Do you suffer from mental? And one of the best anti-solos I've ever heard. Just in the middle, it sounds like it's about to kick off and it does this really stupid solo and then rips.
then the, towards the end there's tracks like Freud's Black Muck and The Way of the Men of the Stuff huge caustic nasty not pop whatsoever and I think harking back to that sort of birthday party influence I was talking about had you guys heard Royal Society much? I mean that's Nah it was a pleasant surprise actually I kind of thought they'd just be a band that like arrived and then I never gave any credence to their next couple of records but it was actually yeah a lot stronger than I thought it would be This was the one that tried they tried to break them with it you know they, they thought like the first one had got attention had kind of come out of nowhere I think they, what they were going for was that kind of Queens of the Stone Age step up to be the sort of no one knows esque really interesting alternative rock thing but I think they're frankly just too oddball mm. to be able to, to, to fit into that as, as odd as Queens of the Stone Age could be these guys are way weirder Mark? I didn't like it uh, this was out of all the three records this is the one that I liked the least um, it's the least punk and Puppy Dog Snails is one of the most annoying songs I've heard in the past <laughs> four or five years that is pretty stinking yeah <laughs> yeah. but I think on the whole um, first record and the next one you're going to talk about are definitely the highlights for me well in between this and the next record in 2007 they did an EP called In The Garden which the actual hard copy of it came with a Ouija board <laughs> which is a fucking cool touch only four tracks uh, Huxley had left in 2005 to start a band called Violin Bicelles who are pretty good uh, kind of death jazz is what they were touted as usually Rich Founds had joined, as we said. This was their first record in four years. Um, the title track in the garden is really strong. But the EP itself goes right back to that much more feral, much punkier, much more stripped down feel of their first album of Curse of the Dog. But then they followed that in 2010, again another three years between it um, and a couple of rejigs of lineup with Blood and Fire. Blood and Fire is a massively overlooked album and if Blood and Fire was as good throughout as it is in at least six or seven places, I would probably have chosen it. Especially because it doesn't get the credit it deserves. I think it's a far better album than Royal Society overall. It sort of slipped under the radar. I think the band had kind of let too much grass grow under their feet. I also think it's the problem when you're such a sort of a band that makes a splash like that. You're of an era and people like remember them coming in and they were fashionable and they got picked up by, you know, press and did support tours by bands that would never normally take them on tour. Yeah, I was looking at, you know, they did supports with everybody from the Claxons to System of a Down and Murder Dolls and Placebo. So it was like this weird mix of indie and heavy metal and punk. So they were a band that like were very fashionable, even though they were also very good. And I think that then affects how you think of them later on because they will always stick in your mind as that first album of that time, you know, that early 2000s era. Those bands you mentioned as well, it sort of highlights that people didn't know what to do with them. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, it's yeah. just like the, the management were like, oh, fuck, we don't even know fucking bands to put you on tour with. We don't mm. know what's going to work. Like the Claxons to fucking murder dolls is like yeah. bizarre. You know, it's a, but neither of them don't make sense. Like, yeah, yes, I know. It's absolutely. tangible but enough it, each way. Yeah, but it underlines how, you know, idiosyncratic mm. his matchbox were yeah. at that point. Blood and Fire, it's got that bigger approach of Royal Society 
but it's also got a bit more of the rawness of Horse of the Dog and In the Garden. The, the, I think the production, the fact that it's a little bit more modest, the, you know, you've not got Chris Goss layering things up, maybe helps that. It's a little bit top-heavy as a record. Uh, they do some very similar as they did in Royal Society with Love Turns to Hate, the opening song. It's that really well-rounded, really strong anti-single. bit like uh, Rise of the Eagles or Mr. Mental. Mission from God is a much straighter punk rock thing with, again, Guy McKnight using these aggro vocals brilliantly. Very eccentric and with a fair amount of boogie-woogie in it. Uh, third track, So Long Good Night, is a real non-sequitur for the band. It takes the shanty thing that they touched at a wee bit before, but develops it into a really strong song in its own right, which I don't think they ever had done. It's, it's one of the only times that they really attain a very strong melodic payoff and you can slip it into playlists with other bands and it sits really well because it's not got that super feral thing about it. One of my favourite tracks in this album though is going to be track 6, a track called Monsieur Cuts which is just a reminder of how heavy this band was. fucking vicious it's such a fucking angry song and it really suits them it really suits them and it makes you think god damn it man I, I do wish there was a little bit more of that because when they let the dogs out man they really let the dogs out you know it's fucking brilliant the vocals on it are superb and it really incorporates that kind of horror element very very well um man for all seasons on that album's got a great chorus and one of the best songs i think the 80s matchbox ever wrote as well as a song called Homemade, which is the 10th one in that. We always touch on this kind of Idlewild thing of, I love it when a song has not only a great chorus, but a great pre-chorus. So you get that double escalation and Homemade has such a fucking brilliant pre-chorus in it. The structure of that song is awesome. It's very mature. It's it, it's a really good sign of the growth of them, albeit it's their last album, at least to date. Um, it just rolls up a lot of the best elements of the band into one tune and again that horror vibe this time a slightly more misfitsy is mm -hmm. is used really really well uh, did you guys listen to this album much? yeah I like this album a lot mm -hmm. I hate the blues is one of my favourite songs but I don't think
I just uh, it was kind of it's kind of weird. I like it. And I like it when all the stuff's kind of weird, but <laughs> yeah, but they go weirder sometimes. You know? Yeah, that's true. Um, and I like that. Uh, this is definitely back to I just more punk. The songs are much shorter than a lot of the ones. I think the Royal Society for me starts to feel as though they're ploughing that furrow for too long. Yeah, and it is a bit of a turn off for me. This one finds the right balance between both first and second record. I think. Yeah, there's a couple of cool riffs on this album as well. Like, yeah, they can actually really play as well. Mm-hmm. They, they, they underplay a lot, but see when you listen to the tracking in the background, there's some very clever touches. Like some really quite technical touches that they almost they almost push against their own ability. Like doing things like the anti solos is like oh, we're just a bunch of jokers fucking about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like they're actually being quite ironic with some of, some of the the arrangements themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, as as good as I think. Blood and Fire is. I do think it's slightly uneven. Uh, there's a couple of filler tracks in it, and it, I wish they'd had a couple more bits of like Muncher cuts. I think that is just such a strong part of their game. I would have loved to have seen them utilize it just a little bit more often. So for me, like Horse of the Dog, the, this introduction album was just brilliant. I mean, it's like 2002. This came out. Mm. It's got to still be one of my most um, heavily rotated albums like, I absolutely fucking love this record And okay the production is a lot weaker Than the two that followed But god damn it's such a fucking good record Like 26 minutes long As well It's just It just lends itself to repeated plays It is a little time capsule It just takes you straight back to them Being that age Totally The, the chaos of you know I can only imagine what the live shows were like Yeah I was fucking stuck up in Inverness obviously I can honestly say that they were excellent they were just excellent this super confident weird enigmatic guy with this brilliant scream but this really disarmingly sort of like somewhere between like I said Jack Sparrow and Bruce Campbell or something like that you know Mm. this weird fucking look to him he was just such a compelling figure and the rest of the band were all really eccentric as well like like some really odd kind of like vaguely hipster but almost like only fools and horses type outfits you know mm. that kind of like london borough like it's a fucking weird band like i think um i mean i always knew them and i'd heard a couple of tracks and i always remember you know reading five star reviews of them and stuff like that but i think once again we've got to go back and blame the stockist in inverness hmv because <laughs> i know for a fact i really wanted this album and then they never had it and then once i hadn't bought it in that first two years i never got around to listening to them ever again really um, I will say I think they're a little bit marmite because when we used to be in the van on tour I assumed that this was a band especially given the style of music we played I assumed this was a band that the guys would love mm-hmm. and nobody ever took to them as much as I took to them and I was really confused by it because I'd, I'd be like, or maybe you've just not heard the right track so I put a different track on I'd be like listen to that it's amazing yeah. and they'd be like I just don't get it and I, I, don't, I don't understand why so I'm curious how that vote's going to go down because I'm aware that this is one of the bands that I've been the least adept at judging who's going to like them. Of all the stuff I've tried to foist upon people, which believe me, mm-hmm. I'm sure you do, is a lot of stuff. This band has been the most hit and miss of all, probably. I really, to this day, don't understand why some of my friends don't get them, but they genuinely just don't. I um, think we've spoken about this before. It's definitely a you-had-to-be-there moment. Because you got have you, it's like one of those bands where... If you're not there at the start, you're not going to get in because you 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 missed the 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 slight buzz. You missed the incendiary live shows. You know, what I mean, you missed yeah, the fucking the Kerrang shit. You know, what I mean, you missed all of that. And a lot of bands that doesn't obviously that does a lot of bands a lot of favors. But if you miss it, then it's like because I, I think this is a good record. I, I I didn't hate it. 
I couldn't really understand why you loved it so much, but it's not bad. Um, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think it's because I was listening to New Metal this time. I was fucking 15 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I seen them in Krang and I think I thought those guys look fucking wild, man. And then I heard Celebrate Your Murder because it was all over Krang TV and all over Scuzz. And I was like, nah, it's just not my jam. See, I fucking love that song. Uh, it's the, the simplicity of it, the kind of the nature of the lyrics. I mean, I, I mean, it comes in chilled. It's like, it probably has the most vamps, uh, most cramps. A uh, sort of mm-hmm. vibe to it Yeah The Vamps The Vamps <laughs> uh, <laughs> Different band Jesus um, They're playing next week And it's you know Like Slow Dead Kennedys It's a very simple song It's like punk rock And I think But lyrically as well It it, it Lyrically it has that Special something That Celebrate your mother uh, yeah. It's a dirty job But someone's got to do it well mm. Please don't tell your father Because I'll fuck him as well Something really fucking. It's a misfit. It's like a total misfits thing. That yeah, like, you know. it's great. Like I yeah. love that. That was something that wasn't happening at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. You had all these fucking really earnest new metal bands singing about self harm. Yeah, or you had these crap like third generation emo bands, and then you had this band coming in with this cheeky shit, and you were like, oh my god, thank fuck. Yeah, helps arrive. I could definitely, much like Mark, I can see how it could be so exciting, and I remember also just thinking. Fuck! They, they look like the most exciting band in the world. Um, you could have ended up a different person if that guy in HMV. I totally. I know. If we'd had more eighties, <laughs> imagine B-line. what you'd be wearing right now. Imagine if I was a psychobilly. <laughs> <laughs> Would we even know you? I think. Um, um, in terms of the tune itself, like, I, I, w- one of the things that really sold me in "Celebrate Your Mother" is that final thirty seconds when Guy McKnight's vocal register goes up and he starts screaming for yeah. the first time. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing the Elvis thing and you're like, oh, right, okay, that's fine, that's fine. But then he opens his lungs and fuck me, he can do that so well. I love that about it. Um, it's got the it's got the absolute Jerry only misfits based on the whole record does. <laughs> I mean, if if they were a proper psychobilly band, that'd be double bass, and they would they would sound like a completely different beast. Yeah, mm-hmm. like but they've got that proper nasty kind of grindy misfitsy bass tone, which is I'm pretty sure Jerry only's like through a guitar amp. I don't even think he's playing through a bass amp to be honest. But you know, it's like it's got the exact same feel to it, and I loved that about it. I was like, yeah, I'm fucking into that sound. I would say like Sim. I think Sim instead of Simon, he played with a sneer in his face the whole time, every time. Mm-hmm. Like the look in that guy's face was like he'd smelled a fart mm-hmm. at every show. It was fucking brilliant. Like it totally worked. Track two is chicken. It's chicken. <laughs> this is this it's is a the thing. More that, barmy. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing because they started with this one tune that's a very self-contained, fast rockabilly thing with a high vocal at the end, but then the where are they going to go next? And they just fucking blew the doors open with chicken because it's just totally random and bizarre. His vocals are like the start of the show. He's really getting into the rock and roll thing with like little bits of like flashiness and embellishments on it. Um, again, Reverend Horton Heat with bits of birthday party, two huge ingredients in that. 
I got an Iggy vibe from from the kind of swagger of the song, yeah. a bit stoogey. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, the swagger's the thing. Yeah, it's that kind of like the little bits of flashiness in the vocals, and he he had bits of that live as well. He wasn't as obviously as manic as Iggy Pop live, but he'd alternate. He'd do like a schizophrenic thing between being really really animated and then just freezing and staring at people, and it it, it was yeah. That's that's a really good reference as well. You're right. Uh, Whack a shit, the third one. Is it name for a song? <laughs> <laughs> it's got that weird, almost like Jesus Lizard uh, bass riff and and rhythmic bit in it. Uh, again, I think that alludes to that sort of alternative can, rock. Can I just credential. can I just say Chicken was in a Nike advert in like two thousand and eight? I think got picked wow. up for a Nike advert. Mm. Wow, yeah, and That's uh, right, actually, yeah, and you can kind of see why because it's like catchy as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a bit weird. There are really an, there, get there an odd like choice. That. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That is pretty weird. Uh, I whack a shit the middle eight in it as well that you call yourself a man I'm just a man I'm just a man I said like a, a really strange bit of music for something mm. that's been a punk record at that point the breakout single I think for a lot of people was Psychosis Safari the fourth one Even though Celebrate Your Mother had turned some heads, Psychosis Safari was the one that really sort of set the ball rolling in terms of, all right, they've got something to follow that through with. Uh, unlike so many of, like, I would, I would say Cooper Temple Claus, for example, mm-hmm. you know, they had, well, like, holy shit, there's more going on here. That I drink all night and I sleep all day thing just repeated, kind of contributed to this weird mystique around them, this druggy, oddball vibe they were giving off. Um, also, it's just a really good fucking title for a track. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like, absolutely. it kind of defines them as a band. Yep. Production-wise, the chorus makes really good use of the stereo. The song is right down the middle. And then like when... double-track vocal in the chorus, which is Yeah, well, that's it. So cool. They just yeah. expand everything. Mm. Rather than turning everything up, they just open it out. And it, it has a really, really powerful effect. The anti-solo in the middle eight as well, another bit of them being stupid and then my one of my favorite things about this band is that filtered vocal lead-in that they do just before the end of the song on the record i've obviously done it with an eq but live, what Guy McKnight used to do was he used to put his, cup his hand over the microphone and he'd do that. And it's so effective, man. It's almost like taking like a dance track where they would filter, you know, the vocal sample, mm-hmm. filter the vocal sample, slowly opening it and then the beat drops. Only this is a fucking rockabilly band mm-hmm. doing like a beat drop as though you're in a dance. But I, I thought it was such a great touch, that bit. Giant Bones. Gonzo Punk Like Really really odd song Sounds like it's about To go off the rails At the start Sounds like they're struggling To keep the tune going And then goes into This really odd chorus And that Elvis break You know Shut up bring my song 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Right of the city. I, w- I want to go back to that song when we've when we're talking about the album as a whole. Okay, cool. It's got a proper Dillinger feel towards the end when it goes mental, like the timing is just fucking weird. Everything's falling apart. It's brilliant, man. Yeah, it gets pretty frantic. Fish fingers with that really weird falsetto verse that they do for the first time. Um, that song rolls along really nicely. I think it's one of one of the ones that's like a bit easier to get into a groove on. Not so kind of, not so stop starty. Uh, the middle eight in it has got that bell dried symbol. Um, yeah. The I am the sun. I am the son of God. Charge the guns. It's, but I think it's like this is the only one that I can remember having any sort of political overtones. Even though I mean that loosely, but you know uh, that repeat uh, repetition of "Come on and die, come on and die." McCluskey vibe this song I feel it like, does actually yeah, yeah you're yeah, right definitely McCluskey kind of popped up in my listening a lot on this record you know we're talking about bands that they were peers of they yeah. probably have a lot more in common with McCluskey aesthetically and in terms of their own perspective in the music industry than any of those strokesy Datsuns yeah, yeah. another definitely. one was Cult. Yeah. They were around the same Aye. time And then there's like bands and, like and, uh, and stuff Icarus like Line as well Icarus Line yeah. were, that first album by Icarus Line Mono yeah, like definitely. That, that really fits them as well. Morning has broken. Eighth tune. He was born on Christmas Day. He's going to get you whether you like it or not. Santa Claus is also cancelled. By the way, I checked that earlier. Is he? Yeah. Damn. Uh, the, the the vocal follows the bass part at the start of the song, which is pure, which is really effective. Yeah, that's right. Aye. Mm. Uh, and the chorus, "I want to live my life making love," again, just gold dust for a band that's doing rock and roll and trying to get people singing along. So it's just a brilliant line, mm-hmm. so silly, and that ending of the song as well. That I feel love just builds up yeah. so well. Team mate number nine. I'm a man. Drive my Mercedes. I'm a man. I'm sweet. I like the ladies. <laughs> I think that was in a, 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 a game that I played when I was younger. I think you're right. Yeah, they were. They were in a, a video game, but I can't remember what one. I think it was a Tony Hawk's game. Pretty sure it was a Tony Hawk's game of some kind. I've yeah. heard this song on somewhere before. They I, were 100% on a video game and I cannot remember what one it was. Yeah. I mean, another great song, but you're talking, these half these songs are only a minute and a half long. Yeah. And the album's maybe best digested as a whole, so trying to like dig into them individually is... Sort of don't want to pick apart the magic, but this one slows down a bit at the end. It's one of the only ones where it really starts to slow down and take a breath, albeit it's quite dissonant and quite nasty at that ending. Uh, and then the final one, 
track 10, which is the longest in the album at 4 minutes 6 seconds, Presidential Wave, has that really odd, tuneless, nonsense intro, which mm-hmm. uses up a good 30, 40 seconds, something like that. Mm-hmm. And these ugly vocals kick in straight off the back of that. One of the fuzziest songs, and I think listening to some of Andy Huxley's other stuff, I think you probably had a pretty big say in that side of it. That's a Misfits thing as well, the mega fuzzy guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, McKnight's he's like schizophrenic best in this tune. It leaves nothing on the on the park as regards the vocal performance in this. At two minutes, it drops into this again, sort of echoing the intro. This nonsense middle eight, which is kind of woozy and lo-fi, then back out into this ultra fuzzy ending. And that's it, 26 minutes, in out, 10 tracks, totally lean again. Like I said, I've had this album for 16, 17 years now. Mm -hmm. I still love listening to this album. Uh, It is absolutely a desert island disc for me. Uh, in that sense, yeah, I'd, maybe you're right, maybe you do have to be there, but I was there, god damn it, I'm really, really glad I was, because <laughs> it is uh, something I'm really, really happy that I get so much out of. Yeah, well, there's like two things that came to me when I listened to this the first time, you know, when we talked about doing it, so like, probably, I think it's the first time I've actually listened to the album the whole way through. Uh, first of all, like, when Celebrate Your Mother comes on first track, it's way calmer than I thought it would be. Because I had this idea of them as this mad, chaotic, you know, fucking punk rock chaos band. And then it came on and it was way slower than I anticipated. They and wait, just way more... Is it not like 30, 40 seconds where they wait and then they kick into the... They get that... That comes in like after yeah. like 30, 40 seconds or something. So it's like a false start, really. It is a bit of a false start. But like a lot of their tracks start and actually are simpler than I thought and like less abrasive, less aggressive than I thought they would be. They're definitely less heavier than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. They're way more... I'm not sure if they're even more tuneful. They're just they're more way more... Gonzo. They're, they're, they're not into, yeah. They're not into heaviness. They're into like... A bit of cacophony, they're into a bit of dissonance, and yeah. they're into using the rock and roll thing and getting some of the weight from the subversion. Like, yeah, the, it's like the, a heavy vibe almost. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what being... the album really has is a total vibe. It's got really fucking strong atmosphere. Mm. And overall, it's it's really solid. It's a really solid record. It's, it's I think it's like a good stripped back punk record with good songs. The, the other thing that stood out for me, uh, Giant Bones. I think that must have been the track that I heard originally. And to me, that stands head and fucking shoulders above the rest of the record. No way. Because it's so chaotic and it's got all this fucking mad shit in it. And like you said, it's got that Dillinger bit at the end where it's sort of tumbling, like that famous Idlewild quote, it's like a, a flight of stairs falling down a flight of stairs. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then it's got the big stompy bit and like the 
the yeah and everything in it i fucking love that song that song is so so good that all the other tracks on that album are like seven out of ten compared to that just doesn't have the mad chaotic energy that that track has so overall it's a really solid record but i don't think a band could feasibly have done it but i wish that the rest of the tracks were as good as giant bones do you know uh i mean i think that's interesting because i don't think that'll be many people's favorite but it's good that it is because it's good that you see something in it that perhaps gets overlooked from people who've come at the album via the running order that they intended They've also they've got a lot of like peripheral stuff. Obviously, they did quite a lot of singles, so they've got a lot of B sides and stuff. And the B sides can get pretty mental, and the B sides can bring up a lot of that. There's a live CD that went along with in the garden as well that's got some tracks that weren't released elsewhere, and they do resort to that kind of mania a lot more often than maybe the album. Certainly, Royal Society suggests. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean that's that's really interesting because that's like you know you are seeing that. From an angle that I hadn't perceived it from. I love that song, obviously. Yeah. But I love that song in the context of the stuff around it. Yeah, I think maybe I just heard that song on a compilation or something like mm. that and got really into it. And in fact, I think it was maybe Yeah, it was from the Kerrang cover best of two thousand and two compilation, right? And I mean you can really get this is like a time capsule here. Mm-hmm. Starts off with Disturbed. Oh fucking oh. shit. Newfound Glory, POD, Silver Chair, A. The Datsuns, Idlewild, Finch, Feeder. So you've got a mixture of like grey, MOR, is... sh- new metal past the point, the, you know, the, the hot point. You've got <laughs> some uh, garage rock coming in with Datsuns and the D4. You've got Murder Dolls, who, you know, yeah. kind of that sort of scuzzy horror punk thing. And I just remember that album coming out and it was Giant Bones was number 20 of 23. And it was the song that stood out on that entire album that was just like different it wasn't you know yeah tied to any other genre really yeah, i mean they, they had no right to be in amongst stuff like disturbed and silver chair because they're like you know i know it's ostensibly alternative music but fuck me they're they're, they're just from a different planet mm-hmm. in terms of their outlook and music generally yeah so it, it's a remarkable feat that this band managed to compete at that level anyway given who they were where they came from the scene they came up in what they had behind them and the way they sounded that, that they were like not even a, vaguely attempting to be zeitgeisty you know they really they really were not i know people tried to you know associate them with the zeitgeist once they realized they liked them as we've said but even then after fucking like 10 years they were still jumping for tours that made no sense you know it was just it's like nobody knew what to do with them and i love that about it i yeah. love it it feels like a very honest band like we just made this weird music we wanted to make and even in Royal Society, when maybe the mainstream was there for the, if not the taking, certainly the, the denting, they didn't. They were just like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is still what we want to do. This is just what we want to do. And I'm, I'm gutted that they're not going as well, because they're still relatively young guys. And uh, I, I still feel like they had something to bring. So, I so Chris, know. you obviously want it in. Uh, I mean, I love this album. Honestly, Mark, I love this album. Uh, I don't love it. I, I don't dislike it. I think it's a, I think it's good records. I'll probably go back and listen to a few songs on it. There's songs that still stuck with me on it. Um, I definitely feel as though I missed the boat on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is the kind of thing I would have really dug when I was younger. You know, I mean, I would have really loved it if I... If I thought I you listened to it when you were younger. I had to celebrate your mother. All right, okay. Because it was on Kerrang TV and on Scuzz TV all the time. I can't remember what the video was like, but I remember hearing the song a it's lot. It's them playing to like a room full of folk dressed as grannies and then a big kind of mosh pit breaks out. Yeah, that does sound familiar actually, now that you mention it. Um, Which is basically the thing that the Mighty Bush did. 
with that song. So well, there you go. Yeah. But I never really gave it much of a chance past that, and I'm a bit, a bit gutted about that. But mm. there you go. Uh, I'd be happy to put it in because I feel like it's a little time capsule of a band that were really fucking exciting. Did a cool thing. Uh, this record is solid. It isn't as amazing as I wish it was, mm. but it's still great. Uh, and they're a cool band. Maybe wishful thinking as well, but last thought. If they ever do get back together again, break your balls to go and see them because mm-hmm. they're so good live. Great. Oh, well, good stuff. Yeah. It's your so, choice next week, David. Yeah. Well, f- okay, uh, so next week, I'm going for something very different. I Am, am I going to hate this? I can't tell, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> I think you probably <laughs> The look will. in your face already says I'm going to hate it. So it's... Uh, Debut mixtape It's not the debut studio album It's the debut mixtape From uh, R&B artist Called Kalella We've come across her before Haven't we? I think we've mentioned her A couple of times I think she's been in a a song Yeah I think she was actually On a Danny Brown track Mm, Yeah All good So Mm. uh, That went well When that happened Yeah it certainly (laughs) did Well I'm intrigued to see How you feel about it Okay I better I'm uh, into it I'm really into it Better start torn Sorry I better start shopping Yeah (laughs) And and a budget store. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much. Cheers. No. See you. Thanks, man.